I'm going to speak today about a uh, strategy for replacing neurons uh, to treat Parkinson's disease. This is work that was supported by uh, CIRM over many years. So giving you an overview of what we've been working on, we are planning an autologous neuron therapy. And by autologous, I mean that the cells that will be transplanted, the neurons that will be transplanted, will, be, will match the individual they're being transplanted to. So you can see over on the left, there's a Venn diagram that shows that the way that we figured out how to do this is from a long history of both learning how to culture and differentiate pluripotent stem cells, but also a long history of genomics, which we have applied to analyze the cells so that we could make this an efficient and safe process. The diagram on the right illustrates in uh, broad terms what we're doing. We harvest cells from people we reprogram those cells to induce pluripotent stem cells. Then we generate dopamine neurons from those stem cells, and then we uh, transplant them back to the patient. We haven't done that yet, of course, but that's what we plan to do when we start our clinical trial. So the reason that Parkinson's disease is a good candidate for cell replacement therapy is that there is no disease-modifying treatment. There's no treatment available that can reverse the progress of the disease. The disease is progressive neurodegeneration, and the motor symptoms, which you're probably all familiar with, the, the uh, freezing and the tremor, are caused by the loss of a single cell type in a specific part of the brain. This means that it is much more amenable to transplantation replacement therapy than a lot of other neurological diseases that have more diffuse pathology, that there's lots more of the brain involved. It's caused by the loss of neurons in a part of the brain called the substantia nigra, by the time people are diagnosed, they've already lost more than 50% of their dopamine neurons. Parkinson's disease is very common. It's the second most common neurological disorder with 10 million patients worldwide. The therapy that's been around since the 1960s and some versions of it is still being used today. It allows people to have their dopamine neurons work better, but it doesn't stop the progressive loss of the neurons. So it's only temporary. The loss of the dopamine neurons uh, results in a loss of a circuit in the brain that controls fine movements. So you can see on the left, the dopamine neurons, once those are gone, that circuit between the substantia nigra and the part of the brain called the striatum is weakened. And what we want to do is to restore that circuit. There's a lot of history here, unlike a lot of other stem cell therapies that are being developed right now, we actually can, can draw on a rich source of earlier studies. And these were studies that were done in the 1990s and early 2000s, in which more than 300 people who had Parkinson's disease were transplanted with fetal brain tissue. That is a little bit of the brain, as you can see in that illustration, a tiny fetus of uh, six to 10 weeks old. A tiny little bit of that uh, brain was uh, dissected out and then transplanted into the, the target of the substantia nigra. And that's important because that's a pretty large thing to, um, to transplant the cells to. The substantia nigra is very small. And during development, substantia nigra needs to grow its connections into the, uh, the striatum over time. And we want to avoid that process. So we put, we, we and everyone else wants to put the cells straight into the striatum. On the uh, right is a cover of a book that was written about these early studies by Kurt Fried, who was one of the pioneers in the transplant for neurodegenerative disease field. Um, it's quite a remarkable 
book, very personal, and I, I certainly recommend that people read it if you want to understand how this all started. So the problems with the fetal cell t transplants were that the results were variable. Uh, the good news was that there was no harm done to the brain by the transplants. In fact, hundreds and hundreds of people transplanted with uh, cells to the same part of their brain, fetal tissue to the same part of their brain. Um, and in some cases, it was a remarkable improvement. The symptoms were completely reversed and people were sustained for the rest of their lives without any motor problems for more than 20 years in some cases. So it's clear that when it works, it works really well. The problem is that it uh, didn't work every time. And in fact, it worked in the minority of times. In many cases, there was no effect on the Parkinson's disease symptoms at all. And in other cases, the transplanted tissue caused a temporary but troubling dyskinesia, which is uncontrolled tremor. So the problem with fetal tissue transplants really was the lack of quality control. There's not very much fetal tissue available, and you need at least three fetuses for each transplant, each side of the brain. When you dissect the tissue, it's uh, not exactly easy. These are very, very small fetuses. It's very variable. And you can't analyze the tissue before you transplant it because there's no way to expand it. So we um, and others have turned to the idea of using uh, pluripotent stem cells to try to do the same sort of experiment, but more reliably and more effectively. And as you all know, uh, the first human uh, pluripotent stem cells were made in, published in 1998 by um, Thompson and his group. They were derived from blastocyst stage embryos and uh, they gave rise to these cells, which would essentially, they were pluripotent, they could give rise to all cell types in the body. In 2007, there was a paper published that showed that skin biopsies from people and other cell types that you could harvest from people, uh, you could grow those cells in a culture dish. And then by adding reprogramming factors, transcription factors that change the whole epigenetic state of the cells, could result in the production of cells that were exactly like embryonic stem cells, but they came from individuals instead of from a, a single blastocyst. And um, Shinya Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize, I think rightly for that work in 2012. The reason why pluripotent stem cells are valuable for neuronal replacement, especially for Parkinson's disease, is that they provide an unlimited source of cells, unlike fetal tissue. They can uh, differentiate into else, any cell type in the body. Um, it turns out that dopamine neurons are one of the simpler cell types to differentiate. Um, we can control their fate so that we can reproducibly make the same cell type every time from different starting populations. And uh, most importantly, we can do comprehensive quality control because we don't have to uh, transplant all of the cells that we generate. We can use most of them for quality control. This is what they look like when the cells have, have uh, formed in from a iPS cell line. These are dopamine neurons. The green cells you can see are connected with all the other cells and they remarkably uh, become quite mature in a culture dish if we keep them long enough. So I told you that we weren't the only people doing this. So this is a sort of an overview which is published in 2017, which was the result of a meeting we had in uh, Kyoto in Japan in which four worldwide groups came together and shared our plans for our particular version of making uh, pluripotent stem cells into dopamine neurons for Parkinson's disease. There is a European group uh, led by Roger Barker and Malin Parmar. Uh, they're using embryonic stem cells. 
Similarly, the project that was initiated by Lorenz Studer in New York also used embryonic stem cells. And uh, slightly different, uh, Jun Takahashi in Kyoto, in uh, Yamanaka's group, decided to use donor iPS cells, a single iPS cell line rather than a single ES cell line. The difference between those three and ours is that um, they all require immunosuppression. And immunosuppression is something that you um, give to people when they get organ transplants. It's not something you want to take lightly. So we, from the very beginning, decided we want to have cells that match the patient so that we would not need to immunosuppress them. This is a comparison of the two approaches. Obviously, if you use allogeneic cells, which are the single cell line for everybody, those cells will be rejected if there's no immunosuppression, and we won't have that problem. And we actually have confirmed that in our in vitro studies. Manufacturing is uh, scale up to one cell type, one cell line into hundreds of billions of cells. Whereas we do scale out, which means we make very few cells, just millions of cells, but we make them for each patient. The reason why that's important is that if you do a lot of expansion of cells, you get uh, genetic mutations almost inevitably uh, because pluripotent stem cells, as I'll show you in a moment, will acquire mutations that are associated with cancer if you culture them long enough. Since we don't have to grow the cells very long, there's a much less, uh, lesser um, probability of that happening. We also will be able to redose patients if necessary. Um, if, for example, we haven't given them enough cells to start with, in theory, after a few years or so, after they've, uh, we're, we're certain what the outcome is, that we should be able to transplant the same cells back into the same person. There is a method that people are developing right now for making the cells invisible to the immune system, and we don't need to do that. There are some downsides to that, which I won't discuss in this seminar. So I told you that expansion of pluripotent stem cells is a problem, and this is because they acquire cancer-causing mutations as they proliferate. And my kind of crude diagram on the bottom shows that what happens is that there's evolution in the incubator as cells grow. Some of them die as cultures grow. Some of them become resistant, which are those bright blue cells with the little red resistors in them. And over time, those cells, because they're resistant, they eventually will take over the culture, while the other cells will all die off over time. The mutations that we see, uh, the first one we saw was P53, which is a mutation that's found in 50% of cancers. It's definitely not something you want to use in transplants. Uh, this is just a, a snapshot of some of the work that we've done and others that showed that we found these mutations in embryonic stem cells and in iPS cells. And it, is, it just shows that they're everywhere. These are hundreds of different cell lines from uh, many, many different sources, and they all acquire P53 mutations um, over time. So the reason uh, that this genomics is so important is that we want to avoid having any mutations in the cells, but we also want to make sure that the cells we make from each individual are the same every single time. So the outline on the left-hand side shows you that we start with uh, somatic cells, make iPS cells. We use a, an assay called pluritest, um, which uses RNA sequencing, in order to analyze those cells to make sure that they are pluripotent before we start. And then we do another assay, we differentiate those cells and do another assay, which we call neurotest, to make sure that the cells are at precisely the right stage for transplantation. So using these tests, that means that we can do the same thing with hundreds and eventually thousands of patients uh, relatively cheaply, and we can be assured that we have the right cells every time. 
The safety of the cells is assessed by doing whole genome sequencing and what is called uh, SNP genotyping. SNP genotyping, we're doing essentially the same thing at 23andMe does. It tells you whether the genome has had any errors occur in it. And so we do the whole genome sequencing three times during the procedure and the SNP genotyping. So we are using tools that are as thorough as we can possibly do without, with, and still keep the expense down to make sure that the cells are the right cell type, the right cells for the transplant at every stage, and also the, uh, that the cells don't carry any mutations that will cause any problems with the cells after they've been transplanted. I'm going to show this to you, but it, uh, you don't need to grasp the entire thing. This is just a, an overview. If you look across the bottom, embryonic development starts with pluripotency. The cells are pluripotent to start with. Then they go through a stage called specified in which they have fewer options. They can't make every cell type in the body. They, they're limited. And then the next stage, which is the determined stage, is the stage at which the cells don't have any choice that they have to make only one cell type, but they're not that cell type yet, and that's really important. And then eventually they become differentiated and there's no return from that state. And there's also no return from the determined state. They can't go backwards. So this illustrates a tool that we developed with CIRM funding over time uh, called Pluritest, which used RNA sequencing to define any cell population uh, to define it as pluripotent or not pluripotent. There are a number of papers published on this. It is now the most popular method in the world for uh, making sure that your cells are pluripotent before you start. And that's probably one of the reasons that it's, it's popular it has had 30,000 uses so far, is that it's free. It's at pluritest.org and uh, anybody can use it. We also have a, we filed a patent on this um, a while back. We also have this RNA sequencing method, as I mentioned, to predict the fate of cells at their, that they will become functional dopamine neurons after transplant. And this is a little trickier because, uh, as you see again, through embryonic development, the cells are pluripotent and then specified. And now we're trying to catch the determined state, which is the state at which the cells aren't quite dopamine neurons yet, but will be dopamine neurons. The reason we need to do that, the reason we need to be so precise is that cells at that stage are the ideal state for transplantation. And at that stage, when we transplant them, we'll have the maximum survival of the cells and they will also have the maximum chance of growing their axons out into the entire stiatum. So as a summary about this work, we have started from the very beginning deciding that we want to do an autologous therapy as soon as iPS cells became available. There are advantages to this. There, there's no rejection, no immunosuppression. We think there will be better engraftment because of the cues that are, uh, are seen by cells when they grow during embryonic development that self uh, likes to recognize self. We can redose the cells if necessary, and our smaller scale manufacturing will reduce the cost and avoid genomic instability. So it is important to say, to tell people that this greatly reduces the cost of therapy because our quality control allows us to reject cells at an early stage before we've invested any uh, reagents and manpower into the uh, progression of those cells. So we make decisions early based on the genomics and uh, that allows us to be sure that every single time without spending a lot of money that we can produce the right cells for a particular patient. Right now we are doing our pre-IND studies for the FDA and if these go well we plan to start a clinical trial in about a year. 
I want to acknowledge the support of um, probably actually hundreds of people, but these are the people who are most prominent. Andres Brayal was my co-founder of Aspen and the, uh, the leader of this project for a long period of time. Candace, Ha, and Roy have been with me for more than 10 years. Uh, Cullen, Aditi, and Jason uh, are all trained as uh, CIRM interns in my lab, and they went away, and then I hired them again afterwards. So that speaks to the value of CIRM's training programs for creating the workforce that we need for uh, companies like Aspen. Our support is from CIRM, of course, uh, from a foundation called Summit for Stem Cell Foundation. We've had NIH support, support from the Silverstein Foundation, and Aspen Neuroscience has investment from a number of uh, investment uh, companies, including Domain, OrbiMed, and uh, interestingly, Sam Altman, who is an uh, a, um, artificial intelligence expert. I wanted to close by uh, just, uh, this is my only opportunity I'll ever get to do this, is to list all the grants that I've had from CIRM over the period of 2000, and um, it was actually around 2007, I think 2008 through 2020. And this starts with the most recent one, which is the focused grant on autologous therapy for Parkinson's disease. But it goes all the way back to the technology grants that we got from CIRM that allowed us to develop Pluritest and then Neurotest. The grants that are listed at the bottom, there are uh, five of them, are grants in which I contributed, but I wasn't the principal investigator. But they all allowed me to apply our knowledge of pluripotent stem cells to a variety of other diseases. So with that, I will close. Thank you very much for listening.